Okay, so I guess with being a teenager, I'm I'm predisposed to always be in a bad mood. So when I find that it gets to the point where it's affecting how I'm around other people, I find the best thing to do is just lock myself in my room, or better yet, when my mom is gone in a space completely un- unobtained by other people, um, crank the music as loud as possible without disrupting others and just dance to the point of silliness and just be banging on all the walls and rolling on the floors and pretend that I'm being filmed and (laughs) (laughs) and that just always restores me to stay my resilient self. Welcome to the season finale of the Townies podcast, where we present original stories and a glimpse into the creative lives of the real people who wrote them. As always, I am your host, Kim Maxwell, and the stories you are going to hear were developed in my writing and performance workshop in Ventura County, California. Up first is writer, actor, producer, and my favorite woman ever on the whole planet, Lily Brown. I've just moved to Los Angeles, which has been at the tippy top of my super duper dream wish list for as long as I can remember. And I finally made it. I made it. But in the same breath that I thank my lucky stars to be here, I am thinking towards my next goal and the one after that, feeling super behind. You finish something and you're already late for the next thing. Is it not enough that I paid my bills this month? Is it not enough that I went to college and graduated? that I've managed to maintain a 750 credit score, that I drank all eight cups of water today. (laughs) Hello, Lily Brown, producer of the Townies podcast. Hello, Mother, producer and creator of the Townies podcast. (laughs) It is kind of fabulous having you on the other side of the microphone. I'm not nervous at all. (laughs) (laughs) So when did you have the desire to start writing and performing? I don't know that I have an exact moment to pinpoint. There's no first moment or catalyst? No, I mean, I guess I feel like it's always sort of been there, Mm -hmm. part of something or other, Um, whether it's in school or I started taking your class back when there was a preteen class at the Theater 150 location over there. Mm -hmm. Do you know what it was specifically about class that created the kind of environment that you felt safe to express yourself in? Because it's, it's actually a little bit at least unusual yeah. for a junior high school, high school student to express themselves honestly in front <laughs> of their parent. And I don't know that you were always honest with me about no, every single thing. Probably but not. <laughs> in, in relationship to how you were expressing yourself artistically, what, yeah. what was it about the, the constructs of class that made you feel like you could stick your neck out? I don't know. I feel like that's just the container that you create. Even, like, there were people in your class that I would have considered in high school, like, the cool kids, and in middle school, like, the cool kids. (laughs) And probably in a normal situation, I would have been way too embarrassed to express myself in the many unfortunate and fortunate ways in Mm -hmm. which I express myself. (laughs) (laughs) But there's something about the way that you set up class where everybody has to stick their neck out. Like, it's basically either stick your neck out or you're going to be bad in the show and nobody wants to be the the bad kid in the show so i don't know i i just i feel like it was sort of like a collective peer pressure for everybody to 
to be good and to, to really risk something. And that continues throughout my time in the adult class and in other classes as well. You know, I, I went to the uh, California State Summer School for the Arts, also known as CESA. Mm-hmm. A lot of other kids, I think, were struggling to break past that barrier. They wanted to look cool. It was a whole new group of kids. And I was just sort of like, I, I don't know. I already had that seed sown of being ready to <laughs> embarrass myself. <laughs> So now, in addition to writing and acting, you have added producing to your resume. <laughs> and <laughs> it's been a week, hasn't it, Lily Brown? Mm-hmm. Tell me about the play Herland that you are producing at the Greenway mm-hmm. Court Theater in Los Angeles. Um, well, by the time this airs, it'll be closed. This weekend <laughs> is our closing weekend. Mm-hmm. It's a really lovely show written by Grace McLeod, who's about my age, in her 20s, early 20s. Although I guess I'm technically in my late 20s now. Ew. <laughs> and it's about three women who essentially decide to create their own retirement community for themselves in their own home because mm-hmm. they want to have some sort of agency. And they hire an intern to help them set it up because they don't know anything about computers. What? I know. <laughs> And then over the course of the show, we see the intern sort of come to terms with her queerness. Um, mm-hmm. One of the women is is a lesbian. She's just recently also come to terms with her queerness. Mm-hmm. Um, and then every, everybody sort of has the, it's it's this the way I keep describing it is that it's a coming of age story for people of all ages, and that's something that Grace talks about a lot. The playwright she talks about how. Coming of age is sort of this this term that doesn't really encapsulate because you, you're kind of always coming of age at different points of your life. At every point, there's something that you're grappling with and mm. growing with. And even when you're 70, 80 years old, you know, you're still figuring stuff out about yourself. The other thing that you are producing currently is the Townies podcast. Mm-hmm. I would love to know, in terms of producing the podcast— how has um, uh, editing everything together post-recording, after we've done all of the interviews, and actually just comprehensively producing the whole podcast, how has it impacted you as a writer and a performer? Well, first, I have to say I wouldn't be able to do it without Ken. He's looking at me right now and blowing me a kiss. Um, he's, I, I, I couldn't do it without him. He's He's always got great input and great ideas, and... Even when I don't know exactly what I'm doing myself, he he's there and he helps me figure stuff out. Hmm. I don't know if it's changed the way that I write stories. I haven't been writing a whole lot, so that's that's part of it. But it's it's certainly listening to these people that come in for these interviews. Mm-hmm. It's it's changed the way that I. I don't know, just the way that I think in general, I think. It's not, I don't, I, I guess I don't know how it's affected me as an artist yet because I haven't been in that arena for, I haven't been working in that way for a while, mm-hmm. which I'm trying to change. But as a person, it's been really meaningful and powerful and I get emotional about it. Just sort of the the agency that they, I mean, first of all, Writing and developing your own story and then telling it is a really powerful thing. But there's something about getting recognition for it in this way mm-hmm. that is just really powerful for me, like to see somebody who might not consider themselves a writer mm-hmm. be recognized in that way. 
I don't know, and I don't want to put all, like I'm trying to glorify anything, but I, it's 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 really amazing to hear people talk about their stories and the perspective that people have. I think there's we talk about this all the time. There's so mm-hmm. much emphasis on fame and fortune and the and the famous and and the the professional artist, but every person has lived a life and every person has stories that we can all relate to. Mm. And I think there's not enough value placed on real people who aren't necessarily, I mean, some might be, some might be interested in in pursuing writing and performing professionally like myself, but some people aren't, some people don't have that ambition. And I just, it doesn't make their story any less valuable Mm. and it doesn't make the telling of their story any less any less important mm-hmm. in the reclaiming of that story. So I don't know. I, I It just, it helps me look at people in a different way, hmm. in a good way. And I know you just spoke about doing something about sort of expanding your own creative horizons because you keep stepping into these new sort of milieus. I know one of the next things on your plate is a web series. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me about the series. So the show, the the show itself started because well, Noah and I have been writing partners. We for over a decade. I feel like we started writing <laughs> together in in your preteen class, writing these ridiculous scenes about uh, our first scene that we wrote together was about Cindy Melindy Doolittle and <laughs> Mary Tony Ford. <laughs> These this ridiculous duo. We'd wear tutus. It was like so over the top and mm-hmm. ridiculous. No, and I watched a recording of one of our preteen shows, and it it was uh, brilliant. I, I was just I was just screaming with laughter. It was unbelievable. <laughs> <laughs> There's so much about it. But anyway, so we've been writing partners for a very long time, and mm-hmm. we work together incredibly well. And I'm very grateful for his dramaturgical eye. And I think our styles are very different, actually. But together, they sort of. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's kind of like this magical combo. I just really love working with Noah. And the show started, We, it, I think we started writing it right after right after he graduated college. Because mm-hmm. I graduated two years before he did, uh, maybe three years. And it was sort of just about our hometown return and what it's like to move back to a small town living with your parents. What? Um, <laughs> which was great. <laughs> <laughs> No, but it's it's just it's a uh, it's a hard time in anybody's yeah. life. I read this thing one time that was like graduating call after graduating college is one of the loneliest times in your life because you've just left the highest concentration of people your age that you will ever have in your entire life. Mm-hmm. And so I've just we've, you've just left this huge peer group that you've spent four years or two years, however long you were you're studying for, mm-hmm. and then you come home and then I mean at least for me I had a mountain of student debt. And I was just feeling really lonely and listless. And so we started writing this show, and it's been in development since then. And it's about that, about coming home after college and, like, what do I do now? And what's the name? Well, it's gone through a bunch of different names, but now it's called Ennui, which is a term for listlessness and confusion and, you know, just feeling completely lost. So it's just a little bit of a comedic lens to... Yeah, it's a, it's a funny show. It doesn't sound like it. I've not framed it <laughs> in a way that makes it sound fun. But it's supposed to be funny. But it also takes a good hard look at the things that are really hard about graduating college and yeah. being home. And, you know, recognizing how fortunate we are to have gone to, have gone to college and mm-hmm. to have, you know, homes that we can go back to because our parents still live in our childhood homes. Mm-hmm. 
So I know that there were a number of meaningful projects that you worked on, dozens of shows and events in college, and then dozens of performances post-college. I also know that along that road, there have been some tough knocks. But being as tough knocks are inherent in this industry, what do you do to keep yourself inspired and reaching for this huge moving target of a career in acting and writing and producing? Man, that is, uh, that's just going right to the heart of it. (laughs) (laughs) I can't say that I have a perfect answer for that. I feel like I'm in one of those particularly, like, why am I doing this times, Mm -hmm. you know? And I think what I've just come to the realization of over the last couple of weeks is just that try, I mean, when, when you can, my, my personal financial situation is I, you know, I have to work in order to support myself, Mm -hmm. but saying no to things that aren't bringing me joy or forwarding me in any way, you Mm -hmm. know, and hoping that in saying no, it'll create an opportunity somewhere else. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's, that's where I'm at right now, and I'm. I guess I'm, I'm just kind of in that in that space just before. Like I don't know if this is gonna work out, but I have to. I have to <laughs> make the space, or else I don't. I don't know. You know, I, I have to make the space for for new things to come. Mm-hmm. So, I don't know. I, I think any artistically or just in life, there's just a series of hard knocks, and the whole thing about life is just figuring out how you can get back up and try to find the next thing, um, even mm-hmm. if it's 7 or 12 or 58 hard knocks <laughs> right in a row. <laughs> Is there someone or something that you turn to for inspiration when it would just be easier to quit? Uh, well... My husband is an incredibly supportive and wonderful human being that just has a lot of space for my endless doubt in myself. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, so I I turn to him for a lot of help. Um, Mama Kitty? My my cat, my lovely, lovely cat. Uh, Noah is a person that I talk to a lot. We talk on the phone probably three or four times a week for 20 or so minutes. Mm-hmm. I call you all the time mm-hmm. when I feel like I call my dad. I call my brother. And uh, uh, Noah has recently helped me turn on to rock climbing. We go mm-hmm. we go bouldering at um, oh. a gym nearby my house mm-hmm. uh, a couple days a week. And so that's something that really helps not only my my self doubt because it kind of gets my mind off of it, but also my anxiety because mm. it's like it's like instantaneous problem solving. You yeah. know, like you get up there and you have to figure out what the next move is, and you can keep trying, and it's you're not unless you know unless you you just have to keep trying, and then you get mm-hmm. to finish the problem. You know, and it's just like a really satisfying like oh did that I finished it. Where do I see myself in five years? Um, yeah, um, where do I see myself in five years? Do you ask this of all of your applicants? I'm just curious because it seems, um, seems a little like a loaded question, um, a little much, if you ask me. I mean, are you asking me if I see myself working here in five years? <laughs> because the answer is no, Sarah. <laughs> No, I do not. 
I do not want to be working some part-time desk job answering phones in five years. In five years, I want to be financially stable with a great job. I want to be like a beautiful flowering tree. I want to be a beautiful Japanese cherry tree with beautiful blossoms made of money. Crisp $1,000 bills because I know they exist, they just hide them from poor people. I don't even want the second job, okay? I'd much rather have just one shitty job. God forbid a job I like and am qualified for, but here I am searching for a second shitty job on top of my first shitty job. And do you know why? Because I'm drowning, Sarah, drowning. <laughs> no one tells you in high school that the job market is shrinking. No, they tell you that the average person who goes to college earns $17,000 more per year. Wow, college sure sounds worth it. <laughs> but what they wait to tell you is that there's no guarantee of a job upon college graduation anymore either. A bachelor's degree is a high school diploma of college degrees nowadays. <laughs> Magna cum laude, double major, and at 25 years old, I haven't been able to land so much as an unpaid internship in my field. I work part-time as a hostess at a restaurant down the street from my house that serves a drink called the Hurricane Slappy because our bartender slaps you when you order it. <laughs> And now, here I am at, what is this company called? I don't know, and I don't care. <laughs> it's pretty much the same as the other four companies I interviewed with this week. And, and this is the first time that I've had a mental breakdown, by the way. I, I was fucking excellent in my first four interviews, but I won't get a single callback from any of those places because I'm currently competing with adult people with 20 plus years of experience and PhDs for Christ's sake. So what the fuck am I to do, Sarah? Go back to school and make myself more competitive, shall I? <laughs> Become a master of arts or science or tomfuckery? <laughs> Dig myself a deeper financial hole in the process? Will you hire me then, Sarah? No, you will not, because I will still not have the years upon years of experience that you are searching for, which, by the way, you can't ask for five years of experience at an entry-level job, Sarah. You just can't. <laughs> you know, yesterday morning, I finally decided to open this email from my mom that's been holed up in my inbox for a good long time about how to manage student loans, and I decided to open it because, you know, I'm two and a half years into paying off my student debt, and I'm thinking to myself, I can't be too far off the mark here. <laughs> I chose the responsible option to pay the same amount every month and have successfully for two and a half years without ever missing a payment, even when it was all I could do to not run off into the woods and hide from that debt forever. I did not run off into the woods and hide from that debt forever. I stayed and I paid and dismayed I was. <laughs> so imagine my surprise when I opened that New York Times article from my mom and what I saw was not a single article as I had pictured, maybe bullet-pointed, maybe short paragraphs, but instead, a list of 15 more articles detailing just about every square inch to do with student loans. Forget the fact that I've already used four of my 10 free New York Times articles this month, so there's no way I could read them all. But the first five to six articles center around what you can do in college to manage your debt. First of all, that ship has long fucking sailed. And who the fuck is even thinking about student loans when they're still in college? Besides that one pink-haired girl who managed to pay off all of her debt before we even graduated? Freak. 
Actually, she was really nice, but still, freak. Nice freak. So I skip to the first section even relevant to me as a graduate, and I bet you a million dollars you couldn't guess what it was about, Sarah. Guess. Guess what it was about. Retirement. (laughs) Which, at my age, is more than 40 years from now, and that's if they don't raise the retirement age before I make it there. So having my slight panic attack at the mere title of this article, the high cost to focusing on student loans over saving by Ron Lieber, (laughs) I tried to stomach the article itself, which bases itself on the assumption that a college graduate can get a job at $45,000 within a year of graduating and that this job will have a matching 401k. My PhD toting college professors couldn't land a job at $45,000 a year right now, Ron Lieber. (laughs) And do you know what I would do to have a 401k? Do you know what I would do to know what a 401k is? (laughs) And then the whole thesis of the article. One should start saving 4% of this magical $45,000 salary with a 4% 401k employer match now while paying off their student loans because if you were to wait to pay off your loans first and start saving at 32, well, then you might as well die. (laughs) Because following that model, the 22-year-old is able to put away a reasonable $1,829,571 for retirement while the irresponsible 32-year-old saver will only have a measly $1,433,532 to live out the of their life with. Can you imagine? <laughs> and again, this is supposed to be advice for the fresh graduates, the 22-year-olds, so I'm actually behind. I've been practically pulling coins out from between the cushions to make my $300 a month payments for two and a half years, and I've only paid off $7,200 with $27,859.68 to go. It feels like I'm David and my loan is Goliath, Except in this version, my puny $300 rock bounces right off of Goliath's head and he Hulk smashes me into the ground. (laughs) Did you know that the average American worker gets less time off than a medieval peasant? (laughs) A medieval peasant! (laughs) How did this happen? happen that we are all so hungry for the next thing and the next thing and the next thing? What happened to singing our praises? We're so busy trying to reach the next step all of the time that we end up disappointed in ourselves and living beyond our means for our entire lives. I want to go to college. I want to buy a sensible car. I want to go on vacation. I want to buy myself a nice sofa, a comfy bed. I want to own a home. And why shouldn't we be able to have these things? We should be able to have these things, but it's never enough. Like the step we've taken isn't good enough, so it's time to go to the next step already. And already, I've just moved to Los Angeles, which has been at the tippy top of my super duper dream wish list for as long as I can remember. And I finally made it. I made it. But in the same breath that I thank my lucky stars to be here, I am thinking towards my next goal and the one after that, feeling super behind. You finish something and you're already late for the next thing. Is it not enough that I paid my bills this month? Is it not enough that I went to college and graduated? That I've managed to maintain a 750 credit score? That I drank all eight cups of water today? (laughs) Is it not enough that I have survived this long? 
I'm sorry, Sarah, this isn't about you. (laughs) And I promise that I am not usually so, um, well, it doesn't matter. I'm not getting this job. But you know what? I'm doing just fine. So what if I don't save $1.8 million before I retire? I'm getting by and even thriving in my own way. Really? You're a master of French literature. Well, parlez-vous français, Sarah. (laughs) Parlez-vous français. Yeah, I know what that means. God, Sarah, I was being funny. Well, anyway, if you ever... If you ever find yourself at Sharky's on Venice, <laughs> I, I don't have enough pull to get you a drink for free, but um, I'll make sure that the bartender doesn't slap you too hard. <laughs> One Can Dream was written and performed by Lily Brown in May 2018. Did you arrive at class knowing that this is what you wanted to write about? Or was there a prompt or a catalyst, a moment? I don't know if I came to class knowing that I wanted to write this, but I came to class with this existential crisis over my head. (laughs) (laughs) So I, I didn't know I wanted to write about it. I can't remember the prompt. I'm pretty sure it was, if I'm remembering correctly... I think it was just a couple of, like a week before the show, and you and I were having our private lesson, and I just started weeping <laughs> about my student loans and how how frustrating it was to be fighting this behemoth. And and then read actually, like I actually did try to open that those articles up, and, and it <laughs> sent me spiraling. So it wasn't, I don't know if there was a prompt per se, but I was, I was, I had an existential crisis in, in, my private lesson with you, and then you sort of secretly took notes. <laughs> it is really rude to take notes when your daughter's having a meltdown, but, you know, it was really great material. <laughs> what was it going to do? I felt torn. I did. Why the container of the job interview? Mm-hmm. Like, did that create some kind of hmm. pressure cooker or? Well, the the main writing, I think... The number one writing advice that I use the most often that I've gotten from you is the three W's, which is who, why, and why now. Who meaning who are you speaking to? Uh, why meaning why would you be spe- – why, why are you sharing this with this person? And why now is like why – you know, you could have probably brought this up at any point. Like why is it important to share this story right now with this particular person? And – you know, it doesn't necessarily mean it has to be direct address. Mm-hmm. A lot of people just have it in their minds and it it affects – it doesn't have to necessarily be a writing note. It could be a performance note. Mm-hmm. It works for both. Um, but for me, I felt like if I didn't contextualize it in, in some sort of way, it would have just been sort of this floating complaint of existential nightmares. <laughs> And so I I felt like it was important to ground it somehow. And I think putting in the I, 
I went through, I actually, I think I wrote, if I'm remembering correctly, I went through a bunch of different people that I was talking to. Mm-hmm. At first, I was talking, I, I wrote it to a person who's getting ready to go to college, and that just got very negative very fast. <laughs> How to make somebody never go to college. College is great. I'm very glad that I went, but I was not <laughs> feeling that way at the, in that particular moment. And so um, I tackled it. From, I, I wrote, rewrote this piece mm-hmm. with a lot of the same material like four times in that week leading up to the show. I remember. And I, I can't remember exactly why I landed on the job interview, but it, it just felt like the most the, – the, it, it just felt the most right out of all of the ways that I tried it. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's something that I, I like to do a lot is to – I'm a big editor, and I don't I don't want to go crazy because I think – I always save every draft leading up to my final draft because I often go back and use stuff from previous drafts. But I, I, I sculpt and ask questions and think about stuff over and over and over again until I feel – and I actually – I'm not sure if there's any piece that I listen to and go, this is completely done, mm-hmm. you know, or I go back and read something. I'm like, oh, I would change that if I could do it again. One of the things that I love so much about your work is that it is like in this piece, the the place where you get to the meltdown is so deeply um, personal, but it collides headlong into this political angle where I can't see where the personal and the political I can't see the dividing line. They just crash into each other, and it's this wonderful explosion of not knowing if I should take things personally and cry, if I should think (laughs) about them more. Why do you think that is? I feel like I have always been the most compelled by work that is political Mm -hmm. in some way, shape, or form. The play that shaped my—that has, I think, probably most shaped my— my art, artistic vision, I guess you could call it, sounds a little pretentious, but is uh, Angels in America. Oh. I read that play in high school in a, in a class called Modern American Theater, and it, it, it moved me more. I, I don't, I've always loved theater and plays, but it moved me more than any other play that I've ever seen or read. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that that might have been a big catalyst for me. I have always been... I think probably since I read Angel in America and maybe even before then, I've been really interested in the the way that art and politics coincide. And I think there's a lot of room for healing within mm-hmm. art about politics. And so that that that's always been a, a big a big interest of mine and figuring out I don't know. I just think that People talk about, you know, I'm a political person or I'm not a political person. And I mm-hmm. just I don't I don't know if I could not be a political person because I just for me, I see politics everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, it affects everything everywhere. Yeah. And I guess it's how I how I process a lot of stuff that I think is right or wrong mm-hmm. is writing about it. So in light of that, in light of of your interest in politics and then also your investment in sort of the next generation of up-and-coming voices. You're interested in both personal expression and political expression, and that's evidenced by the the students that you work with from uh, My Cops Techio Youth Group and the LI Playwrights Conference, your volunteer work in class. How how do you feel about this new up-and-coming generation of, <laughs> of artists and activists that you share your dramaturgy and your heart with? I wish everybody would see the next generation the way that I do. 
they're just so bright and thoughtful and inquisitive and I don't know I don't know what it is but there's um there's just a lot of hope there hmm. a lot of hope for our future yeah not to no pressure <laughs> As they come up and hit the wall and struggle with their own voice and how to blend their world of activism with their art, what advice would you have for them or, or what offer of support? Well, I, I guess first, I, my support is always there and out loud and big and huge whenever they need it. But I honestly think I... <laughs> I think I've learned more about resiliency from watching the the teens that I've the the teens from your workshop and other kids that I've worked with with the MyCop, the Mixteco Indigenous Community Organizing Projects Youth Group called Techio. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure that I had such a profound understanding of community when I was that age. I, I love coming in and watching the the teens of your of your teen class work together and support each other and reach out to each other they're always there they always support each other they're they go to each other's readings they go to each other's first workshops mm -hmm. i think what what i have to offer them is just my experience like i'm just a couple of years ahead of them in terms of like trying to figure my shit out the main thing is just keep asking questions mm -hmm. Because if something doesn't feel right, sometimes it's just because you haven't quite got it right yet. But then sometimes it's just because it's not what you want to do. It's not what you mm -hmm. like. And I've discovered a lot of things that I don't like. And I think that's kind of all of life is figuring out what you like and what you don't like and filtering out that stuff. And, you know, finding finding the people that you like, finding the people that you don't really want to work with anymore. And so I think don't ever let yourself be fooled into thinking you have it figured out. <laughs> You know, mm -hmm. and just keep keep working through it. And it's hard. And and the way you get through that is by by having and finding your community. Well, it has been just an absolute pleasure and honor to be on the other end of the microphone from you. Well, thank you for everything that you do. And um, thank you, the Townies podcast for. I don't know, just thank you, everybody who's ever been on it. Yeah, and thank you, Ken, for always making us sound like a million bucks. And now, a word from this week's musical guest, Rain Perry. Hey, guys. So, resiliency. Well, I'm sitting in my 1941 Vagabond trailer, which is the replacement for my music studio slash office that burned up in the Thomas Fire and I am listening to the sound of uh, dirt work next door from my neighbor who is breaking ground for his new house. Uh, my across-the-street neighbor moved in a couple months ago, and she's been landscaping and putting little yard art around and making it look the way it looked before the fire as much as she can. And um, all along my street, there are houses uh, built back up um, most almost finished, some underway still. And it just makes me think about, you know, the resiliency of people and the resiliency of this neighborhood. Um, it's not the same as it was before the fire, um, but the 
connections between the people are stronger, I think, because we have had to be there for each other in a way that maybe we weren't always before this happened. Um, that's kind of what I was trying to do with the song, to write about what really matters, what really lasts, and it's not things. So, there you go. What lasts is metal, glass and clay. The rest becomes vapor and burns away. We're here for a minute, so what will it be? Sister got the jewelry, you got the gun The gun that is burned beyond all repair With the boxes of letters and the old lock of hair What lasts is metal, glass and clay Rest becomes vapor and burns away We're here for a minute So what will it be? My dear friend Rain Perry with her lovely song Vapor from her new album, Let's Be Brave. Dang, 
<laughs> We've been through a lot lately. Um, resiliency. Hey, I'm Marion. Hi, I'm, I'm Eric. Mother and son. <laughs> so, wow. Ooh, lots of food. <laughs> lots of watching the Americans. Yeah, for sure. We are movie watchers, aren't we? Yeah. And we meditate. I do yoga. I do the tennis balls, which is a line on two tennis balls and... And doing that deep breathing that Kim Maxwell makes us do in class. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I step on a golf ball. I kind of get a golf ball. I, I kind of step on it on with, like, uh, with my foot, and I just kind of roll around on it. And it's super painful, but it relieves everything. <laughs> <laughs> that is 53 seconds. It's not enough. All right, townies, it's prompt time. And for our last episode of season two, we're going to change it up a little. Over the course of some pretty long days and hard weeks, our buckets become empty. Unattended over time, that can cause us to become less resilient and less creative. So, not surprisingly, when we sidle up to the blank page, we have nothing. And since your job is to fill that page, keeping your bucket full becomes an increasingly important part of your job. This is the Bucketful exercise. It is a series of super intentional acts of self-care designed to fill our buckets back up so that we can go out there with full hearts and clear heads. To begin, Open a brand new doc or pull out a fresh clean sheet of paper and down the left-hand margin, write the numbers one, two, and three. Under the number one, you are going to list a series of super cheap, possibly free, easy to accomplish acts of self-care. It needs to be so easy to accomplish that you can do it in 24 hours or less. My go-to is a fudgesicle from Joe's Quick Stop. Yes, I know it is made of styrofoam, but I think they are delicious. And they remind me of chasing the ice cream truck with my sister Renee. And it brings a smile to my face every time. Under the number two, you are going to list a series of acts of self-care that may require a little more planning. They could require a reservation or a day off or waiting for your next paycheck and might take a week or two, or maybe even a month to accomplish. Maybe it's a play or a movie you've been dying to see. Maybe it's a day at the beach or a massage. And finally, under your number three, list your big time, big deal, lifelong dreams. That villa in Umbria you've always wanted. That book you want to finish. That selfie you want to take at the summit of Mount Kilimanjaro. Write down as many number ones, twos, and threes as you can think of because sometimes our buckets get so empty that we can't think of a single kind thing we can do for ourselves. That's why we have a list. So when we have one of those days or weeks, we don't have to struggle or think. We just choose a number one, make plans for a number two, and know that our number three is all the closer because our buckets are full. So make that list and slap yourself a high five every time you accomplish one of them. Because if you don't slow down and celebrate the little victories, you might not recognize and celebrate the big victories. And celebrating our victories is the bridge to accomplishing the next one. So get out there and fill your buckets. I look forward to my invitation to your villa in Umbria.
Coming up on the Townies podcast. I am eager at 14 to experience what it's like for a boy to love me, and I go through all the emotions of falling hard for him. He dumps me right before his spring formal for the opportunity to attend the dance with not one, but two Burbank High School varsity cheerleaders. <laughs> he delivers the news matter-of-factly that morning over the phone before school as if it was the logical thing to do. Come on, Cassandra. Why wouldn't I go with them? They're hot. Be cool. Our next and final guest on the podcast today is the fabulous visual artist and my friend, Cassandra C. Jones. Hey, Kim. Thank you so much for being here and closing out the season with me. I'm so happy to be here. And let me say, you look more beautiful than normal. Thank you. Oh, did you just crack your knuckles right into the microphone? I did. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Ken, you're right over there. Awesome. <laughs> you are an incredibly talented professional artist whose work has exhibited in fine art galleries all over the country. So my question is, why does a professional artist take a writing class? Oh, that's such a good question. Um, I decided to take the writing class because, uh, for a few reasons, it wasn't just the writing, it was also the performative aspect. I give mm -hmm. a lot of lectures on my work, mm -hmm. and most art lectures are really boring, and mm -hmm. I wanted to start every lecture with an interesting story. Mm -hmm. And so... You know, a lot of people that take your class come because they are scared to speak in, in public. Mm -hmm. I am not. Um, I used to be, but um, after years and years of talking about my work in public, it kind of went away, mm -hmm. and I started to enjoy it. Mm -hmm. And so I just really wanted to hone that skill of telling a great story at the beginning of a lecture before I explained my work. So with the changes in the art world as of recent, um, I know that in addition to the demands of, of producing your own work as an artist, you are also doing graphic arts and logos and branding and websites for other folks. How do you stay inspired and driven and invested in doing your own best work for yourself and for others? Well, I take classes like yours <laughs> to remind myself that um, I, what I do is interesting and that there's something we're saying mm -hmm. and, um, and it keeps me motivated and, uh, it reminds me that I, I, I can create all the time, mm -hmm. um, create my own work all the time, even if I'm not, um, actively just doing my own work, um, when I'm writing, I, uh, it makes me feel better about what I do. Hmm. So with this piece, I seem to remember, like, you came in with something specific that you were going to perform for the show after you'd been off um, doing a, a fabulous installation in Boston. You came back with a specific story, and it wasn't the story that you wanted to tell. And you had a big, huge, like implosion kind of a meltdown sort of a thing um and then you came back like i think a day later or two days later with a completely different piece that was fucking spot on how did you do that how did you write your way or feel your way or cry your way you know or work your way out that out of that kind of heartbreak or sort of stuckness 
Oh, man, I felt like I had a baby trying to get this story out. <laughs> and you've had <laughs> to, felt, so you would it know. It felt like labor. <laughs> um, I, You're right. I came in with a story that I wanted to tell mm -hmm. that was sort of had an environmental bent to it, mm -hmm. something that my last body of work and installation was about. And um, it wasn't... It wasn't right on, and we both knew it. Mm -hmm. And But I had, if you remember, I had given you the title of the, sh the story that I ended up writing before I wrote it. Mm -hmm. Because I think on day one of the class, I knew I wanted to tell that story, but didn't know how to. And the whole class, I kept trying, like I kept waiting for that prompt that would prompt me to tell that story, mm -hmm. but it never came. Mm -hmm. And I, um, I was in my studio the night before, and I think I even texted you, and I was like, it's just not going to happen. <laughs> you did. It was yeah. one of those, I'm not doing the show, but I do love you, Kim, kind of texts. <laughs> And I think I, I believe I, le I accidentally left my phone at home, mm -hmm. um, and I, you had tried to call, and um, I was in my studio, and I was like, I just, I got to get this out, and I don't know how to get it out, and I, I was like, got to get it out. I was like, I was, there, was, there were tears, <laughs> mm -hmm. and I knew it was in there, and I kept having to tell myself, just be honest, just be honest. Like, you don't, it doesn't have to be anything. It just, mm -hmm. just be honest about it, and um and it took several hours just to get the first paragraph. But once I got the once I got going, it just unraveled like a ball of yarn. Hmm. And so, although the piece that we are about to listen to is very comedic, its genesis <laughs> was not particularly funny. Why the shift in tone from what it felt like into um, the comedic genre that you actually chose? Well. I mean, you know, and you know, there's that saying, "Oh, well, I'll laugh about this someday." <laughs> Is that today? <laughs> I finally got to laugh about that story, mm -hmm. <laughs> and it felt good to laugh about the story. I didn't tell that story. I never told that story. I never told that story to anyone. I didn't tell that story to my best friend. I didn't tell that story to my husband. I didn't tell that story to my parents. Um, I I didn't think I could tell that story hmm. because it was so embarrassing. And uh, but one, again, one of the great things about being in your class is that, and you say this all the time, all the time, is that you know by getting up there and telling our stories, we give the audience permission, and that's really empowering. That it's given me permission to laugh at myself hmm. and and be self-deprecating, and be honest. I am in the ninth grade attending Bellarmine Jefferson, a Catholic high school in Burbank, California. My parents, who are liberal-minded, ex-hippies, are not religious. But the campus is a block away from our apartment, and I had some trouble in high school, or the other school. So they transferred me here. My unkept uniform is a white short sleeve shirt with a tie tucked into a dark blue polyester skirt that never fits right. I am slightly overweight. And the hemline that is supposed to fall below my knees is an odd cut. It makes me feel frumpy. 
Therefore, I am always trying to fold the waistline over a few times and hike it up a little higher when the nuns aren't looking. <laughs> I am awkward, artsy, and not terribly popular. My friends in school are a group of misfits. They are the stoners and the heshers, one boy who gets chastised because he has two moms, and a girl whose mom is so young she feels like one of us. In contrast, I am dating David, a varsity football player from Burbank High, the nearby public school. We have nothing in common. I have never had an athletic pursuit in my life, and he is far from creative. But he is funny and confident, and he likes the idea that I want to be an artist. It makes him feel edgy around the other players. <laughs> Recently, I drew a realistic, full-length portrait of him in his football uniform, using the pastel set I got for Christmas. His mom had it framed. The fact that he likes it makes me feel special, and the fact that I took the time to draw it makes him think that I like him enough to put out. <laughs> I know what he assumes, that I am a token fling, but I don't want to admit it. I am eager at 14 to experience what it's like for a boy to love me, and I go through all the emotions of falling hard for him. He dumps me right before his spring formal for the opportunity to attend the dance with not one, but two Burbank High School varsity cheerleaders. <laughs> He delivers the news matter-of-factly that morning over the phone before school as if it was the logical thing to do. Come on, Cassandra. Why wouldn't I go with them? They're hot. Be cool. So I spend my lunch hour weeping alone on a pew in our empty school chapel. How could I argue? How can I compete? I am just a chubby, weird girl in a dumb, ill-fitting uniform. <laughs> the next day, sullen and sulky, I see a sign in the gym that, that changes everything. Cheerleader tryouts. <laughs> no experience necessary. <laughs> Everyone welcome. At that moment, I run through a full color gradient of pros and cons. <laughs> I acknowledge that the idea of me trying out for the pep squad is ridiculous. But I keep thinking about David and then his two new girlfriends and how much I want to win him back. I've, seen, I've always seen the cheerleaders as stuck-up, overly objectified airheads. But now that I am in a full-blown state of self-justification, <laughs> they look like strong, confident athletes, <laughs> spear raisers, and feminist leaders. <laughs> All of a sudden, I envy them. In contrast, I am by nature reserved, insecure, uncoordinated, and out of shape. I can't even touch my toes. <laughs> but then I get excited about the idea of training for something, breaking out of my shell, and turning all that around. And I pump up my ego with encouraging thoughts like, it wouldn't hurt to apply myself to something bigger than myself. And Cassandra, don't be afraid to try new things. The last thing to go is my cynical self. Aren't Catholic school cheerleaders an oxymoron? <laughs> A contradiction in terms. 
School policy requires us to wear our, to cover our shoulders and wear hemlines below our knees, but the girls on the team wear tank tops and teeny tiny little skirts. They are trained to throw their legs up in the air and perform stunts that flaunt their briefs. <laughs> we are supposed to be learning God-fearing moral values up in this place, and, but Coach Sister Mary Patrick is like straight up pushing erotica for kids. <laughs> not see the paradox of ethical ambiguities in this pursuit. <laughs> Fuck it, I don't care, I'm in. <laughs> so I sign up. Right out the gate, I am magnificently bad at it. I can't jump or kick or remember the cheers. I... I <laughs> I mix up my left and my right. <laughs> and I get dizzy when they try to put me on another girl's shoulders. <laughs> but what I don't know is that Bellarmine Jefferson has an inclusion policy. Anyone who tries out to be a cheerleader gets to be a cheerleader. <laughs> and that's not a good thing. <laughs> they have to designate me a pep squad tutor. <laughs> Sorry, they have to designate me a pep squad tutor. <laughs> that I work with privately in a separate practice room. <laughs> for a solid week to get me through the tryouts. But I go where I'm told to go and I don't realize they've singled me out and I have the time of my life. I am stretching, working out, breathing in the fresh new me and noticing my body like I never have before. I feel the beat and the rhythm of the cheers on the football field and even though I am the bumbling weak link in the group, I am resonating with school spirit, and I am into it. <laughs> when they announce that everyone has made the team, there is cheering and hugging, and all the girls wrap their arms around each other as we sway and sing the school anthem. <laughs> then I think, wow, I am on an actual team. I feel giddy in a new kind of special. I, like I am part of something. Plus, I'm going to get a hot uniform, and I get to go to cheerleading camps, and I'm going to be popular, and I revel in, in knowing that David and everyone else is going to like the new me so much more. My parents have a different experience. They feign excitement at first, and then gingerly remind me that I have always wanted to be an artist ever since I was a little girl. But I say, no, no, forget that. Cheerleading is what I want to do now. I love it. Please let me be a cheerleader. It's so fun. Please, 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 please. So they try and be cool with it. They pay the $50 deposit for my uniform, and I think that seals the deal. Behind the scenes, they are just biding their time until they figure something else out. In less than one week, they lovingly tell me that I will not be returning to Bellarmine Jefferson next year. And what I know deep down is a protest. They say we can no longer afford the tuition, but I know better. For whatever reason, they can't wrap their heads around this as a lifestyle for our family and me. <laughs> so after a cheerleading career that lasted a divine two weeks, 
Once again, I spend my lunch hour weeping alone on a pew in our empty school chapel. I am in the 10th grade in the visual arts department at the LA County High School for the Arts. I am back with the misfits, the stoners, the heshers, and the kids with weird parents. Only in this school, there are a lot more of us. <laughs> the only ones who feel different are, are the ones, the only ones who feel different here are the ones who are not. Ultimately, I am glad for the path correction. And I don't think about cheerleading or that jerk football player for years. I am in graduate school at Carnegie Mellon University, receiving a master's degree in fine arts. And one late night at a drunken party, it comes out that I was a cheerleader for a whole two weeks. <laughs> My colleagues laugh and ask me if I have any photos. Of course, I don't. But it was one of those funny moments in my life that I never truly reconciled. And I get to thinking about it. <clears throat> a quiet part of me remembers that what it felt like at 14 to be encouraged and accepted. As, and part of me wonders what I would have been like if I had seen it through. I would not be here now. Then one day, cheerleaders makes their way into my art. A bunch of, I find a bunch of, fo of photos on eBay of girls with their legs up in the air performing stunts that flaunt their briefs. And I decide this is a great time to embrace and explore the paradox of ethical ambiguities in this, that pursuit. <laughs> so I cut them all out and I turn them into a big, large-scale collage that becomes a wallpaper installation. And it shows in galleries and museums all over the country. And I give academic lectures on the work where I talk about objectivity versus feminism and religious values versus erotica. It's one of the early pieces that starts my career as a professional artist. Those images remain in my work for years to come. And to this day, I still go down to the football field every once in a while and watch the girls practice. And I enjoy the beat and the rhythm of the cheers. Good Cheer was written and performed by Cassandra C. Jones in May 2019. So this piece, Good Cheer, the inspiration from it comes from this piece that you did that actually exhibited here in Ojai. Yeah, um, it, it was one of the first places it, places it exhibited. Um, it was at a gallery called the Nathan Laramendi Gallery. Oh, and I love that gallery. A lot of people will... Well, probably who were around at the time will remember it. Um, Nathan, um, I believe he was he closed his gallery in like two thousand nine or ten, mm -hmm. um, and he let me have the entire gallery and I filled wow. the gallery with the wallpaper and uh, and then we toured the wallpaper. We he took it to a lot of um, art. Uh, contemporary fine art uh, fairs around the country. Mm -hmm. And it ended up showing in probably 15 more galleries after that. I think this is a really, really great time to ask you to, to actually tell me, because when you say wallpaper and installations, you wouldn't necessarily think of the kind of work that you do. Would you explain for our listeners what it is that your work is? Sure. So I take lots of digital photographs, individual photographs, and mm -hmm. cut them out in Photoshop. And I copy and paste them and flip them around and size them and do various things to them. Um, actually, all very simple tools, not a lot of effects. Uh, and I make collages with them. 
And those often end up as large-scale wallpaper installations. Mm. In this case, this was cheerleaders and mm-hmm. that all had one leg up in the air and, and they were showing their briefs. <laughs> uh, and they were like, you know, half of the shapes were sort of mandala-like and the other half of the shapes were like crosses, mm-hmm. uh, which is where the religious reference came in. And um, it uh, would, a couple things would happen or does happen with my work when you walk in the room, especially with that piece, which is, you you know, you walk in the room, you see a wallpaper installation, you recognize it as a wallpaper installation, it looks like grandma's floral wallpaper, and then you get a little bit closer, and it looks a little weird, and mm-hmm. it's a little fleshy, and this colors are a little off, and then you get a little closer, and you realize that it's all these tangled legs and arms and hmm. crotch shots. <laughs> And um, and then uh, I you know I also make uh, large prints all in editions of two so they're um, sort of rare rare mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's it that's what I do and so this piece is about your piece <laughs> which is this whole cheerleading thing that kind of launched your your professional career it's the origin story it's your origin story but interestingly. Your story from class is not actually about cheerleading. It's about something else. What would you say? What would you say about that? I feel like it's about trusting your path Mm -hmm. and um, knowing that things happen for a reason Mm -hmm. and uh, and believing that um, the choices you make in life are the right choices, mm-hmm. even when they're really, really hard. Mm-hmm. Wow. When did it occur to you that your story, that it was important to tell? Well, that that piece of art um, has shown so much. And I've told a version of the story, but really surface, mm-hmm. um, the surface of that story. I talk about... Um, you know, the juxtaposition between family values and pornography. And, you know, I talk about it in sort of a theoretical way mm-hmm. uh, when, I, when I give a lecture on that work. And mm-hmm. lots of people have asked me why and where that really had come from, and I never wanted to say. Mm. And so it's been on my mind to tell that story for years. But again, like I said in the beginning, I just couldn't. Yeah. really bring myself to do it. And this gave me permission and a venue and an outlet and a and a box to do mm. it within. Um, that was, you know, it had a time limit. It mm-hmm. had, you know, it could be short and sweet. And it's a, it's a fairly safe environment. And how do you manage to push yourself through, like, all of the self-doubt? Because there were so many places in which you hit that wall loudly. <laughs> Slightly apologetically, um, but you just smacked up against it. What were some of the tools that you used to push yourself through it? Wow. Um, I feel like the alternative was worse. (laughs) (laughs) The alternative of not showing up was was worse. (laughs) Tell me about that. What would it mean to not show up? I don't, I'm just not that kind of, I think it's, I, 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 maybe I should do a story about that. (laughs) I I feel like I could not, even though I really wanted to not show up and just mm-hmm. say, I just can't do this. Mm-hmm. I just can't do it. Um, I I probably would have died inside 
a little. <laughs> so, um, and 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 maybe that's a good thing. Maybe that's mm-hmm. uh, something that keeps me motivated in everything I do. There's especially as an artist. Look, I'm a I'm an artist, a mother of two, living mm-hmm. in a small. I'm a woman. Mm-hmm. <laughs> a mother of two living in a small town with a husband that travels for a living, mm-hmm. trying to make it in an art world that doesn't exist in Ojai. It really exists in the Los Angeles and New York and the major cities. Mm-hmm. And um, and so there are so many walls to hit. Mm-hmm. There, in life, there's so many walls to hit. And th- there probably isn't a day that goes by that I'm not like, I'm just not going to show up tomorrow. Mm-hmm. I'm just not going to. So the next time you send me, I'm not going to show up text. I'm just going to be like, I'm going to call you out on your shit and be like, bullshit. See you there at seven. <laughs> but that's, yeah. but, but then I guess there's something in me that yeah. just is like, well, no, I have to show up. I can't not show up. That's a big and one. And so. Because um, sometimes it is just about showing up. And and also I, I, I do really love getting up and speaking. Mm. And that's such a huge word. Maybe it's like, you know, when people get tattoos, it really hurts. But then you're like, can I have another, please? <laughs> <laughs> and so it's hard, you know, it's hard. To, it's not easy yeah. to get up and speak. And I do get nervous and, mm-hmm. and I sweat and I'm, and I'm you know, I'm, I'm very giggly and, mm-hmm. I, and I'm scared that people aren't going to like it and they're not going to laugh or they're not going to react. But once I do it, I'm like, oh, I want to do that again. Mm. So there's probably also that where I, where I, I, I want, I ultimately want to present something. Hmm. So with almost everything in our culture training us to cling to what we know, how do you stay curious about yourself, about your work, about your fellow man? Oh, um, how do I stay curious? Um, Hmm. I've never not been curious. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I... I, you know, I wake up every morning and I want to see something new, really bad. Hmm. I'm not nostalgic at all. Not mm-hmm. even in, I have no nostalgia in me whatsoever. Mm-hmm. I, when I, you know, when I scroll through Instagram, I'm always looking for something I've never seen before. Mm-hmm. It's one of the reasons I'm such, so passionate about art and especially contemporary art because it's so full of things that are new and weird and unaccepted, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. And um, not like things that haven't been vetted yet, <laughs> you know, they haven't been around long enough to to know if they're good or bad. Mm. And that uncomfortableness gets makes me excited. <laughs> so um, there's something in me that's always looking for that. Mm. Uh, I want I I I I want to climb the mountain to see what's on the other side. So is there a piece of wisdom that you have for our listeners or your fellow students or your friends and neighbors that are maybe wanting to stretch out and go on a limb to express themselves in some form and they're just afraid? I say whatever it is you want to do, do it anyway, even if it seems like it's going to be bad. Just do it anyway. Even if you suck? Even if you suck, just do it anyway. I think I think that advice is common <clears throat> amongst really, really successful artists. It's advice that I've been given many times mm-hmm. and I've heard many times from from other people's lectures. It's just just even if you think it's awful, do it anyway. I, I think some of the best artists and writers in the world have failed so hard mm-hmm. that they can't see straight. And 
what their success is really that they got up the next day and they were like, fuck it, I'm going to do it again. And uh, it's it's hard to do that. It's hard to get up in the morning and do and like fail the one day and get up in the morning and pick yourself back up and do it. But just do it anyway. Just fuck it. Do it anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I think that that's a spectacular way to close out season number two. Get up and just fucking do it anyway. Do it anyway. <laughs> oh, thank you so much for coming in, and thank you so much for closing out the podcast with me. You're the best. Oh, you're the best. Mwah. I love you. I love you too. Woohoo! Yay! That was amazing. Yeah, that Did was my great. Did mom tell you that our Hi. theme for the episode today is resiliency? So yes. your last, <laughs> yeah. your last little time. Oh, good. And my dad's like, where are you? Hello? <laughs> Hello? Okay, I just finished. I'll meet you over there. <laughs> okay, bye. We are the Townies, and thank you for hanging out with us for another glorious season of original stories and a glimpse into the creative lives of the real people who wrote them. I am Kim Maxwell of Kim Maxwell Studio and the Townies, Inc., and we are in the business of connecting people one story at a time. The Townies podcast has been produced by Lily Brown, Ken Eros, and me with studio engineering and mixing by Eros Creative and Sound. The Townies theme song was written and performed by Rain Perry, recorded and mixed by Martin Young, and mastered by Mark Holman at the Congress House. Thank you to this season's storytellers and music contributors, to every single donor, listener, and supporter, to our board of directors, and to the people who inspire us and keep us moving forward. Molly Allison, Woody Brown, Claire Charpentier, Patrick Lashley, Asa Larmanth, Olivia Lors, Amaury Sagrand, April Theriault, Marissa Utz, and so many more. A special thank you to our callers this week, the mother-son dynamic duo of Marion and Eric St. James Lopez, and the fabulous and soon-to-be-leaving-for-college Arlie Sakai. This podcast is made possible in part by a generous grant from the Ojai Arts Commission and the City of Ojai. You can find out more about us and today's storytellers at thetowniespodcast.org. Thank you for listening. I know. I can't believe this is the last time. That take was just in my nose, but you can pick it up if you like. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, can you believe it, though? I mean, that's this is crazy. I, I, I hadn't thought about it this whole time, but this is the last... Uh... Yeah, the last hurrah. She's well, crying. It was quite the hurrah, though. It was a spectacular hurrah. <laughs> You're going to make me cry now. She fans herself. <laughs> I don't think that could be a more dramatic moment if you tried. Actually, we need a fainting couch in here. Yeah, and you There's need not a video room. of that. Oh, I've got the vapors. <laughs> Is that, maybe that's what uh, Rain's song is really about. <laughs> <laughs> the vapors. You just change it. And thank you. Can, could you get me a cool glass of water? <laughs> For her song, The Vapors. <laughs> I do declare. <laughs>